When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Mud 79. I'm Fearless Fred Kennedy, the creator of this totally original and in no way authorized Star Wars fan fiction podcast. If you're listening to this, you probably love Star Wars. I do too, and have always dreamed about telling my own story in a galaxy far, far away. A story that's less about the Jedi Temple and more about those who were on the front lines. A boots-on-the-ground story about how those living in the galaxy survive the horrors of war. That's what Mud 79 is all about. If you're new to the show, welcome, but please be aware this is a series. So if you don't want to be totally lost, start from the beginning with episode one. You don't want to be a stormtrooper. This is episode 17, Towers and Terracossi. As the 79th settles into their new base of operations, Captain Bali informs the company there will be a legion-wide Terracassi tournament with a cash prize for the company that wins it all. The Mudders also establish a defensive perimeter, which is repeatedly tested by enemy fighters. What are these enemy probes attempting to accomplish? Does this mean the 79th's new position is already under threat? Let's find out. Three hours later, I was relieved from duty and headed back to the security checkpoint for my briefing, which was normally just a, yeah, I didn't see anything. But this time, it was a... Report to comms room six and central admin, private. That was new, but I guess it made sense given what I'd just seen. The clerk at our minuscule admin building which was really just a reinforced prefab, had been expecting me and led me into one of the private comms rooms. I'd never actually been in one before. There was a table and some chairs. All the simple stuff you'd find in any Imperial setting. Same ones we had in the mess hall, actually. Soon as the clerk walked out, the lights dimmed and the hollow projector in the center of the room fired up. Good afternoon, Private Kwai. I understand you came across something during your patrol this morning. Another white tunic. Fantastic. Spent the next hour explaining in various levels of detail every aspect of what I'd found out past the wire. What species were they? The skin hues. Were there any markers? How did I know where to look? Did I have any theories about what happened based on the presented evidence? Once I'd returned to the watch post, what did I see? It was a very mundane and repetitive conversation. The intelligence officer wrapped it up by reminding me that I was not, under any circumstances, to discuss what I'd seen with my fellow troopers. Yeah. Like that, it mattered. 
guaranteed this would be what everyone was buzzing about for the next few days. When I walked out the door, I saw the same admin clerk leading in another soaking wet mutter for what was no doubt going to be a very similar conversation. We gave each other a nod as we passed and I headed back to the barracks. Cleaned my gear and stowed my rifle before heading back into the shower and scrubbing every crevice on my body. You always found the parasites in the crooks of the knees and armpits. They actually clogged the drains given how many we pulled off every time we hopped in the shower. If you didn't treat the compression gear with repellent often enough, they'd even get into your ass crack or other spots. It was never fun having to dig them out with your knife no matter where they were but the whole experience took on a much more dire aspect when it was a more sensitive area. Nasser beetles were bad in the foothills. You'd find them almost every time you showered. They were easy to get out, pretty painless. The vamp slugs were the ones you needed to watch for. They carried disease and hurt like a bitch to get off. Four sets of pincers ripped you up every time. Then I hit the rack for a few hours rest before walking to the ring for training. Saw Murray on my way there. He'd already been busy in the PT yard. Had that sheen on his skin and a grin on his face. You look nervous, Kwai. I'm not nervous, I shot back, clearly indicating I was. In my entire life, I'd really only been in five or so tussles I would call an actual fight. And most of those were before I even left home. Nothing special either, just dumb kids swinging their fists around because they couldn't think of the right thing to say. Although, one of those fights, if you could call it that, was just me losing a tooth to one of my cousins who didn't think it was fair I got a few extra credits for some work we'd done on the farm. I was 14 and they came at me with a rake. I wrestled it free and tossed it to the side, thinking that'd be it, but no. I took a fist to the mouth, and from there we just traded blow after blow until my aunt pulled us apart. I figured that was the closest thing to what was about to happen, and I was shook to the core, actually. I know you're a bit confused about this, because at this point, I'd been in near-continual combat for close to a year. I'd been in the infirmary after getting cooked up by Sesher bandits. I'd even been beaten within an inch of my life by a bunch of giant Burke bouncers. But this... This was different somehow. Standing in a gravel ring, nowhere to go while someone squared up with you, and you're alone. That's a different kind of tension. All right, troopers. We have two months to put together a winning team for the tournament in Flume Bay. Thirteen fighters, three alternates. That's it. You lose one fight, you're out. In order to win the tournament, you'll need to win ten fights in a row over the course of five days. Sixteen of us were getting a five-day trip to Flume Bay. That's really all I heard. The fight stuff didn't matter to me. 
I'd already written myself off and was on the verge of throwing my first fight so I could get the hell out of there, but a five-day trip back to Floon Bay. Lead pass with creds in your pocket? Come on. That's great. For those of you unfamiliar with my background, I was once a professional Terracossi fighter on the supernova circuit. My career was cut short when the Clone Wars broke out. Since then, I have coached multiple regimental teams to victory in both the Imperial Army and Navy. I'll be keeping a close eye on all of you, and selecting only those who I feel will give us a chance to win. I took a look at the gathered fighters. Saw Husto. No shirt. Guy had more than his share of scars running across his chest and arms. Looked deliberate. Murray was a few paces over, towering over almost everyone. No Hefspar, though. Wondered where she was. Did she not sign up? What a waste of an opportunity. And what about the LT? That guy was literally bred for stuff like this. He put on a show for sure. First thing we're going to do is run through some calisthenics, and then some basic hand-to-hand techniques. Simple holds, kicks, punches, etc. And from there, we'll start some light sparring. If you don't have what I need, you walk. No shame in it. You're all great soldiers, but I can't keep any more than necessary off regular duty. Made eye contact with Quam, that corporal from the engineers. We nodded at each other. I wondered if he got suckered into this like I did. We ran through a few drills, getting a good sweat on and working out a few knots in my upper back. And then got partnered up to start hitting each other. That's literally what we did. The drills with the punches and kicks were all full contact. No padding, no protection. This was Terracossi. Quam stayed true to his word and we stuck together for all the drills. We just started doing some holds and throwing stuff when I got this worm of an idea in my brain that maybe he was playing me. Sort of getting in my head so that he'd know what I could do and when we actually started sparring for spots on the team, he just put me down. So, I held back. We'd put him in a sloppier grip and then pull back and consistently throw shots at his head. See, I had this plan where if we sparred each other, I'd switch things up and then go for his body where he wouldn't expect it. Was it dirty? I don't know. I just wanted that trip to Floon Bay. Quam was fast and he seemed like a good guy. Cracked jokes and his trash talk was pretty great. So after I put you out of this thing, you gotta polish my parade boots for me? Make him shiny so I can see your black eye. The captain called us over and lined us up, counting us off in pairs. No attempt to match people based on size or weight or anything. It was just get out there and beat the hell out of one another. The first two were just squaring up when someone called out from behind. Sorry I'm late, Captain. I was taking an extra shift on the other trench. Sergeant Hefspar was here at last, and now I knew where to put my money. Even if I broke my nose and got cut, I could make some extra creds, a nice bit of compensation for missing out on that trip to the bay. The captain told her to hold back and she'd get paired with someone in a second. 
She was already focused on what was happening with the first two fighters, although it was a bit of a letdown. Neither one really wanted to let their hands go, and it was boring enough that maybe a minute into it, the skip told them to start acting like they wanted to be there, or they'd both be sent packing. That did the trick. The second she blew her whistle again, the smaller of the two fighters came in with a straight front kick. I thought it was a low miss, but they were actually going for their opponent's leg. It hit hard, and they stumbled, and the smaller fighter came in with some driving punches. Then the pair fell into the gravel, sending stones flying. That little guy was just going, arms beating up and down like pistons. The skip blew her whistle and dismissed the loser, patting him on the back and chuckling, saying not to be upset. Terracossi just wasn't for them. I wasn't judging, because I had no clue what would happen once I got in there. A few more fights passed. Two of them were worth paying attention to. One featured my former sparring partner, Quam, and he held his own. He was winning, but then took a clean shot to the side of his head and crumpled. Then it was my turn. I was staring down another human, this guy from the 78th I'd seen on our first flyout. One of the grunts we'd gone in to save. He was bigger than I was, and it was intimidating. He charged quick, threw a few heavy windmill punches. They were clumsy easy to slip. I was getting clipped a touch and sort of gauged his power each time. When he got in close, I moved ahead and to the side, driving my knee up into his ribs, which was one of the greasier moves I'd break out playing Lemmy. I capitalized on it, driving my right fist into the side of his face. Then I stepped back to square up again. When he didn't follow, I came in and jabbed with my left. He was waiting and took my arm, threw me over his shoulder into the gravel. It looked dramatic, but I landed clean and he didn't capitalize on his momentum, so I was able to get up and position myself for when he did come at me. I was tucked tight, like a ball. This was something the LT was always vocal about when giving us hand-to-hand -hand instructions during our regular combat exercises. Stay compact, like a ball, like a spring ready to explode. Get in close and attack. Hold nothing back like your life depends on it, because it does. I dodged a straight right hand and didn't fade when he got closer. My hands were squared and I faked with a quick left jab and he dipped his head to the side just a touch, which was perfect. I came up with a straight uppercut elbow, connected clean with his chin. Then he dropped to the ground. It was over. That's it. I looked over at Murray, who was looking genuinely happy, amused even. I walked up to him, breathing hard. Good work out there, man. I told you you'd be good at this. He got called up next and made pretty short work of his opponent. They tried working his body, but it didn't even phase him. He just skidded past like it was nothing, then caught them in a headlock from behind until they passed out. The training session was closing in on an hour and a half, and there weren't many fighters left who hadn't been through the gauntlet. 
Then, the scene I'd been waiting for started. The captain called Husto and Hefspar to the ring. These two? Fighting each other? Murray and I exchanged glances as they strode out in front of everyone. Hefspar had at least a foot and a half on the corporal, and I'm confident that one of her legs weighed almost as much as his entire body. But he was so calm, that classic chill vibe he always had, not phased at all. Mind you, neither was she. The sergeant was always angry looking, and when the whistle blew, she came at him hard. A dizzying flurry of blows, so fast and powerful. And he didn't strike back, he let them glance off, deking and moving, sidestepping, never crossing his feet. Incredible grace under fire. She swung her right foot up and around in a crescent kick, and he dropped to his knee and punched the front of her leg. You saw every muscle on his torso clench when he threw that punch, and it landed square on her quad. The entire leg started spasming, and she scurried back, her leg twitching, resting on her right side. She grunted, and Husto danced around to the side, danced, circling and watching, no change to his expression. She moved in on him again, a quick right hook, and he slipped low, but she was ready. Delivering a left hook low to the body that hit him clean, it picked him off the ground she hit him so hard. But while he was still reeling, he gave a fierce snap kick, again hitting her left leg. And she buckled, stumbling to the ground. And when she did, he threw a straight left. The Deveronian was out, cold. Gotta say, did not see that coming. The corporal immediately leaned in and rolled Hefspar over, elevating her knees and putting her arms at her sides. She came to with a jerk, and then Husto started laughing, saying it was over. Then she laughed. Their fight really was the highlight, though, and a few minutes later, we were done for the day, more than a quarter of us being told we were already cut. There were still 11 more, that would get the axe before we had 16. We were all taking our time, sauntering to the barracks to get cleaned up, and Husto was lining us up to take a look at our injuries. If you're bleeding or took a few shots to the head, I want to get a good look at you before you hit the showers. I don't want anyone passing out in the heat. I was fine, and so was Murray, so we nodded at him and went on our way. And he actually nodded back. You two did all right out there. I'll tell the LT we got some fighters with us. That might have been one of the nicest things he said to me during my entire time serving with him. Murray began apologizing for egging me on as soon as we were out of earshot, saying he heard that the corporal was quasi-Mandalorian or something, 
but in no way expected what we'd just seen. It took him completely by surprise, and he felt like hot trash for what could have potentially happened. Normally, I'd have milked this for all it was worth, but Mondi was on us as soon as we opened the barracks door. Murray, we need you to get on the horn for us. We saw something on patrol this morning, out past the wire. Had it not been for the Terracasi stuff, I'd have asked Murray about it right away. But I didn't like to run my mouth when there were people I wasn't super in with nearby. I didn't think there were spies or anything sinister like that in our unit. But you really did need to take account of who was listening to what. Murray said he hadn't heard anything, no matter how hard we prodded him. But he knew who to ask and saying it might take a while. The white tunics were everywhere these days. Keeping tabs on comms traffic. If Imperial Intelligence got interested in you, for anything, it seldom ended well for you or your family. The Sesher activity on the surface and in local shipping lanes had them on high alert. And the new Commodore wasn't one for a soft touch. He wanted the local violence dealt with efficiently and brutally before we moved on to the separatist stronghold of Halfaken Bay. The next day, Murray was unloading everything he knew about the current tactical situation and troop deployments while we lit sticks and crushed a bottle of Kang Tree with a few other 79 originals. You guys seeing that? Altherium saw something coming in from the south. A series of lardies, eight of them, which was odd. Odder still, they were refabs, no weapons, supply ships. They double-parked on the pads and began unloading. Bracelets lit up for all off-duty troopers to head over and haul crates. Look at all that clean gray. Altherium was right. Clean gray. These were our reinforcements. A whole slew of FNGs. The Lardies had more than just a bunch of new cannon fodder for us to chirp. They also brought anomaly identification scanning towers. They were these mobile sensor units made to specifically detect the enemy cloaking signature. See, those cloaks the Seshers leaned on were becoming a real problem. They were relatively simple to build, effective at keeping anything from a squad of mercs to a small shuttlecraft off the scopes. And they'd acquired so much Kenyan, they had a lot of them. Made them slippery, dangerous. Fall back! Run! And lately, they'd managed to hit a few patrols hard, and then, poof, gone. 
Unfortunately, they didn't have a lot of air power or heavy artillery. But with their cloaks, they could come in with a rapid airstrike or unload a steady barrage of heavy fire onto one of our positions. The only scanners capable of reading through the fuzz were on board the cruisers in orbit, which took too much time and the Seshers knew it. They'd pull off raids, sap our numbers, supplies, and we just couldn't catch them in time. So, Command supplied us with these scanning towers. We take them out into hut country and fire them up to form a wide field of surveillance. They would detect the subtle signature the cloaks left, those little pockets of nothing. They were meant to help us track down the enemy in their own terrain and keep them on their heels, where they belong, not taking villagers and legitimate prospectors hostage. The scanners came in big crates, looked heavy. I wouldn't know, because we made the FNGs do all the lifting, told them it was part of their training, and while they were lifting and moving them over to the container yards near the pads, we would drop hints about what awaited them outside the wire. You hear about that squad in 42 company that got left for dead by Seshers over in Sector J-19? Yeah, I think so. Didn't a few get eaten by Poda apes? The look in those kids' eyes. Hilarious. They found their racks, and after a few days, they seemed to be fitting in all right. Jumpy, but eager. 79 Platoon was still down a few mutters, despite the new FNGs. So we had undersized squads, and there were still only four scouts, doubling mortar and grenadier assistance as riflemen. But we had a lot more punch than we did in the previous months, even if that added manpower was a bunch of fresh gray FNGs, it was still better than nothing. And the LT was getting his claws in him. I was still training in the ring every day, half of it intense PT and the other half sparring and post quarter drills. A lot of what I found most effective were the incredibly simple things the LT taught us during our first few months on the surface. Locks, throws, quick sharp punches and short kicks. The simpler, the better. I'm not a smart guy, and I didn't want to confuse myself in there. The rest of the days were with the platoon, or just a few squads training for defensive measures with the new gear. Those towers seemed like the Empire's best hope of bringing stability to the Vista Valley. The sensors on these mobile arrays will maintain a screen of visibility, allowing us to pick up on the enemy activity at a far more rapid pace. As such, they're sure to be our priority one target for the enemy, and we cannot allow them to fall into enemy hands. We'd set them up in place and have a fallback perimeter with the LT and a few of the sergeants acting as guerrilla fighters with rifles set to stun. The majority of us had been in uniform for a while and had done similar stuff back at Vibus on a much grander scale. But you could see the confusion on the new guys. What are you thinking? 
You gotta stay on me. You don't give me those rockets, our whole flank collapses. But there was too much fire. I was trying. Of course there was fire. It's a combat zone. If this was real, they'd have cooked our asses. Tolan had it pretty bad. His new assistant on the RPS-6 was this jumpy Keshian. The runt of her litter, for sure. And it was her who needed to be handing off rockets to him when we took heat. All while keeping watch with her E-11 for anyone getting too close. It was a hard job, but most important ones are. The number two on the mortar was an even more demanding job. Keeping the explosives coming and assisting in the firing process while the number one kept the thing sighted. We were an effective combat unit, but in order to be effective, everyone needed to do their jobs, and you couldn't allow for slack. So the FNGs needed to get on the page. You can think we were being assholes if you need to, but try to remember that fresh recruits get you killed. They got their first taste six days after landing. The whole platoon was headed out on a four-day patrol. It was an interesting setup. We'd fly out, hike a few clicks from the LZ, set up the tower, which was broken down into four major components with each squad carrying a single crate. Then 12 hours later, we'd pack up and move and set up again. All the readings relayed to orbit and the Navy would call in precision hits, order drops, sometimes even full tie assaults. The Commodore was very much committed to making his presence felt. We move quick and quiet, troopers. We're headed right into the thick of it, and the briefing from the top says the Seshers are already actively hunting down the sensor towers. A patrol in three company repulsed several groups of hostiles less than 48 hours ago. So be prepared for heavy contact. This would be a new experience. We'd spent the previous months chasing our tails out there, having to hunt down the enemy based on scraps of intel. Having them take a run at us was dangerous, yes, but it was nicer than having to go at them on their terms, and the LT was sure to put us in spots where we'd have a tactical advantage. We flew out right after dinner. Sun would be down in three or four hours, and we'd be spending our first night as a potential target. We knew the flyout was coming, so there was no mad dash through the barracks, loading up and sprinting out or anything. Just got our kit ready and headed to the pads. Saw Mondi giving some shit to our new scout. No, bring as many clips as you can get in the side pouch. If we take any heat, you don't want to be waiting for a clip to charge. That'll get you killed. And bring the toolkit for the scope. If it gets wonky out there, you'll want to switch it out for the traditional glass. Especially if we get tucked down in some valley with loads of grit in the air. Our token newbie in the scouts was a Twi'lek named Quenda. Had a light purple skin tone with dark markings that ran up her leku and down her neck. She was a lot better stock than most of what came off the lardy. Great shot, 
and in good shape. Didn't know how she'd handle being stuck out in the mud for a few days, but there was only one way to see. The LT got on board our lardy, and when we were pulling off the ground, he hopped on the comms channel. Alright 79, this is our first watch with the tower, and I expect it to be used as a textbook example of how a professional unit in the Imperial Army composes itself in the field. I had no doubt it would be. The LT had come down on us like a Mon Calamari battle cruiser that week. But he took on this lighter expression that threw me. Before we land, there's a few announcements I'd like to make. Built some esprit de corps with our new additions to the 79th. I just received word on my way to the platform. There are some promotions to be made within our unit. Promotions? That was wild. Been here a year, hadn't seen any. Our first medic, Corporal Husto, who I understand is quite the fighter in the Terracasi ring, has been promoted to sergeant. Couldn't happen to a nicer guy, I muttered to myself, rubbing my right side with a few recently broken ribs. The LT went on, doling out a few promotions. Bondi made the jump to Corporal, which was well-earned. She'd really shown her stripes in the past few weeks, spotted some recently used sniper hides while out on patrol, and even popped off some Sesher setting up charges as part of an ambush. To show my excitement, I promptly flipped her off. Then came medal recognitions, meritous service, Bravery in the first. Murray got a bravery in the third for saving the LT's ass back at Domju. LT took a pause before he continued. There's actually one trooper who earned both a promotion and a medal too, in fact. Kwai from 4th Squad has been granted the rank of Corporal and won himself both the bravery in the third, but also got a bar for his meritorious service medal and has been awarded the 934th Legion's First Order of Palpatine Medal for his unwavering heroism during the attack on Camp Vibus. This was a surprise. I was more confused than bashful. I just kind of stared in bewilderment at the LT. You should see the look on his face. There was a chuckle and then the LT's expression went back to his default setting of Predator. We'll celebrate when we get back to the hill. For now, focus on the task at hand. For the Empire. He clicked off the comms and I looked down. Then caught a glance of Mondi flipping me off and mouthing, Fuck you. We certainly had the bearing of junior non-commissioned officers. The flight took close to an hour. This was another part of our new combat procedure. The four lardies would scatter and all meet up at the designated position at the exact same spot, despite traveling at different speeds and routes. Another way of throwing the enemy for a loop. We came down quick and broke off in our squads, taking up different spots in a four-point defensive posture. Then the LT marshaled us and called over the four scouts. Everything was kept off comms in case anyone was monitoring us. There was idle chatter, calls down the line and stuff. It was minimal, of course, but nothing of strategic importance. A lot of our movements were very hush-hush. 
The sergeants knew where we were headed, but they didn't hand that information down to the troopers. Even then, they only knew because they needed to, in order to keep our route secure if the LT got torched. Us scouts were only given the target coordinates once we landed, and that was only so we could move out ahead of the column and make sure the watch site was safe and secure. No sign of habitation, recent activity, scan for blaster residue and all that. The sky was getting darker and the trace outlines of the nebula were starting to glow pinkish purple on the horizon. We landed in a grassy clearing near a river, a wide one. Shoreline was made of these massive sheets of stone and in every crack vegetation was spilling through and taking hold. There was a stiff cold breeze which kept the flying critters away. The coolness also made the IRDs easier to deal with. Yeah, those infrared dampening suits they made us throw on during the Firepoint mission. Scouts wore them as standard in the field now. Couldn't wait to wear that shit when the summer bloomed in full. I was gonna smell worse than an Orbach stable. The breeze brought with it a damp hint of rot that sweet stink of a forest in the middle of spring stuck in my nose as we moved in on the LT's position and got our bearing. He scratched some numbers into the mud in front of us. Coordinates. This is where we're headed, the former mine site. Should take six hours or so to reach. Stay out front 500 meters. If you do spot anything en route, call back to this encrypted channel. Then he scrawled out a few more numbers and sent us on our way before scraping the writing off with his boot. Our route would take us a click west of the river and then north through some dense jungle. The four of us hit the tree line and fanned out. I was on the far left with Quenda to my right, next to Mondi with Arkham on the far right side. The air below the trees was stagnant. The stillness put pressure on your ears and with the lack of airflow, it ensured the stink of jungle just hung there. The smells mixed in with the physical clawing of undergrowth. Shrubs and brushes, tall dangling grasses, trees and stones painted thick with moss. Predatory plants with thin vines that would snag a finger, wrap around your hand and leave you scraped and bleeding when you pulled free. Vines dappled with blooming flowers, smelling so strong it reeked like day-old spilled liquor, the kind with too much sugar. There were bugs climbing on every surface, zipping past your face, biting into your neck, birds and flying lizards snapping beetles mid-air as they wove through the trunks. It was easy to get lost in there, lost in your own head overstimulated, pulled in and buried. Quenda was feeling it. Kid was jumpy. With so much in front of her, she didn't have the depth to properly identify a threat. Broke radio silence three times calling out targets. But nothing she called out was an actual target. The only thing that was a viable threat was when we came too close to a dense marsh 
she saw some dulcitos. Those big frog things that would impregnate you with their larvae via their tongues. She asked if we should call it back to the LT, and we informed her that the hatchet crew behind us would be more than capable of maneuvering around the marsh, but credited her keen eyesight for seeing it first. Didn't need her to start second-guessing herself and doubting what she saw, just needed her to learn. At just before 0300, we reached the tower site. By this point, the jungle was almost black. Moving out into a clearing with the nebula overhead was like stepping into daylight. Ahead of us lay a collapsed prefab and a small landing pad, along with what looked like an old utility road that led up to a caved-in mine entrance. Was dug into a small shrub-covered rise that peaked with a pillar of dark stone which looked like a broken tooth. No one said anything, but we fanned out, swept the perimeter and circled around, getting closer until we had the whole place secured. Mondi called back to the LT, letting him know the site was clear. Acknowledged, inbound. Then I took Quenda and Arkham and started running through the prefab with a fine-toothed comb. Found some ion readouts. Looked like at some point within the past few months there had been blaster fire, but the scoring on the structure was pretty worn. Must have been closer to a few years. These prospectors were known to raid one another. Even after we landed, they ran hits. Especially the operators who wanted to keep things off the book. Those were the guys who resented us most. Understandable. If I was dealing in illegal trade that was putting the lives of galactic citizens on the line, I wouldn't want anyone to know either. I was scanning the collapsed mine entrance when Arkham hopped on the comms. Movement to the south. I dropped, slid up against a rock and primed my rifle. Watched three humanoids move into my scope. Are the remaining scouts of the 79th platoon about to come under fire? Can their newest member, Puenda, be relied upon in the field? How effective will these towers be in dealing with the enemy threat? That's next time on Episode 18, Lucky Shots, Kid! Thank you for joining me this week on Fearless Fred Presents Mud 79, a Star Wars fan fiction podcast. If you haven't already, Make sure you follow the show so you'll never miss an episode. While you're there, don't forget to rate and review us. It helps grow the show and will make my contemptible harpy of a producer very happy. We're available for free at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, and wherever else you get your favorite streaming audio. You can also listen at CuriousCast.ca. Be sure to check out the show notes for more information and a full listing of Mud79's cast. If you want to reach out to me directly, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at fearless underscore Fred or email me at mud79 at curiouscast.ca. This show is hosted and written by me, Fred Kennedy, and Dila Velasquez, the Harpy, our producer. Sound design is by moi and final production is by Rob Johnson. I'll see you next week for more Mud 79.